Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. Hello, one and all. Welcome back to Superman Forever Radio, your weekly look at the Man of Steel and all of his incarnations. I am, of course, your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. And I want to kind of start this episode by apologizing for last week not being able to produce an episode. Really, guys, I was knocked down. I had a flu that took me out for a few days, and I wasn't quite back up to speed by the time you know it came time to record. So I do apologize. I really do hate missing weeks. I hate skipping that. A, it's bad form. B, I literally just miss being on the mic and being able to talk some Superman. So it's not something I enjoy doing, but in that instance, it was something that I, I kind of needed to do. I need a little bit more rest. Slept away that whole weekend, and now I'm feeling a lot better. So I appreciate everybody you know, bearing with me and coming back this week. And I hope you know your last two weeks have been fantastic. Last time we talked, we talked about All-Star Superman, the comic book. And last week I had intended to talk about the DVD, and I know at this point, you know, it's kind of old news, it's been out for a while, it's been selling really well from what I've seen, but I wanted to give you some of my impressions of the DVD. Um, so, you know, a little less formal than normal, since it, I can't do a full, you know, feel like it's a full-on review, since it's been about almost two weeks since the DVD came out. But this DVD, if you have not watched it, is phenomenal. Uh, it, I have a, a few gripes, of course, I'm going to have a gripe, you know, when I'm, when, when anything gets adapted. Um, but this one came as close as to perfectly adapting the story as, as it comes, which is a shock when you think about 12 issues being crammed into 76 minutes. Now, of course, yes, there were some omissions and one of them, uh, really bothered me. Um, in that instance, it was the scene with Reagan where Superman, amid all this chaos, stops to comfort a girl whose therapist was caught up in a train. She's standing literally on a ledge, and Superman tells her it's okay. And that was one of my favorite scenes in that whole book. A lot of other you know, fans that I've talked to feel the same way. And I really regret that it didn't make it into the movie, but the late Dwayne McDuffie, and, well, you know, let me segue into that for a moment. Uh, to give you an idea, you know, Dwayne McDuffie died. A great comics creator, did a lot of good work with uh, Justice League Unlimited, Static Shock. He passed away the day the, the DVD came out. He passed away in the, on the 22nd. Which I found out earlier, you know, that morning, sick, laying in, on the couch. And when the UPS man came and delivered my Blu-ray copy of All-Star Superman, something was just... I mean, it took it took me a little bit to actually open it up and watch it a few days, not just because of the illness, 
but because McDuffie was such a strong creative force and from all accounts, he's one of the, the great, you know, community uh, members of the creative community. So that loss was really felt, uh, you know, not just in the professional sense, as far as uh, comic creators and comic enthusiasts, uh, it was, it felt very personal, especially, you know, with this movie coming, having come out that day and, um, Dwayne McDuffie did a great job of ad adapting it. And, uh, I just, I'm really sad that he's not around to, you know, kind of adapt more things and continue. And, uh, well, I'm not going to bring the, the episode down. We all, we've all talked about it. It was just, it was a shock and it is a true loss to the comic community. So getting back on track with talking about the DVD itself, as I said, he, he adapted it greatly. I do have one major gripe and that is in Superman's handling of Solaris. And I think Bleeding Cool did a bit about this as well. There was a line removed where Superman has Solaris on the ropes, so to speak. And Solaris says, Mercy, and Superman, having known this, having uh, previously been told Solaris would be alive several centuries later, says, oh, you'll live, and takes care of him. That one line has was changed to, I think I'm all out of mercy. So essentially, Superman kills in this movie. And I'm not going to debate the pros and cons of it. We know, uh, essentially, if you know the story, it's Superman on his way out of his you know, existence, knowing he's dying, sort of a last will and testament of Superman. And, you know, there at the end, would killing be justified, knowing he won't be around to kind of take care of things anymore? I don't know. I'm not going to debate that here because I'm all alone and that would be weird. But uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You can always drop me an email at mail at supermanforever.com. And, of course, you can always dial us up at uh, at the uh, phone-in line, which I'll give it later on at the end of the show. And some other omissions from the DVD that I didn't feel that, that I felt were correct was taking out the entire Bizarro Zabarro sequence. It would have weighed the, sh the episode down, as well as the Jimmy Olsen doomsday scenario. The only thing is, Jimmy really got really omitted from this movie he shows up for you know really just background where in the book even though he wasn't in it all that much he i mean obviously he got his own issue but he added something to it you kind of saw a different side of jimmy where you know he was the intelligent boy wonder of the superman universe so i felt that character really got cheated but as far as the animation frank quietly his art doesn't immediately say animate me it has a lot of textures, it has a lot of detail, a lot of very jagged shapes, layers. And you know what? The animators got it as close as humanly possible to a Frank Quietly drawing. And a lot of a lot of scenes were really quite astonishing. And one replacement uh, that I wanted to touch on and then we'll move on was the entire time travel sequence, as I mentioned earlier, was taken out. So we don't get the goodbye to Pa Kent. We actually get a scene with Ma Kent, which played out, you know, perfectly. It was sweet. It was exactly what needed to be said in that issue. Not that it was a complete replacement of it in terms of, you know, the value to the story, but it definitely worked. So overall, this movie just hits all the, the right notes. The extras, um, they actually run pretty well. I mean, Grant Morrison kind of rehashes a lot of the stuff maybe you've read on Newsarama or other places where he's talked about it. Uh, 
But I think the addition of specifically Superman now, where you actually see Grant drawing his ideas and seeing his mind develop, really brought a lot of insight to his approach to the story. So the extras were pretty boffo overall. So this is a really great one. The DVD or the Blu-ray I watched looked gorgeous. And I really can't recommend this enough. So if you have not bought this, go out and pick up All-Star Superman. It does get my seal of approval, which is kind of tricky. As you know, I'm, I'm pretty picky about the movies and comics that I really give it a seal of approval. Is it an absolute perfect adaptation? Absolutely not. And if you were expecting that, that's probably, I mean, that realistically, it just wasn't going to happen. But it's as close to perfect as I could possibly see a 76-minute movie running. Some sequences are literally right out of the book. Most of the dialogue comes directly out of the book. So go out, get it. Uh, if you don't have the money to buy it, go to a Redbox and rent it. Or whatever DVD movie service that you use. All-Star Superman gets two thumbs up from me. And I'm going to play a quick promo. And then we'll come back and kind of talk about some of the news that happened this week. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a The thrilling adventures of Superman. A journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com We're sitting on top of the story of the century here. So, obviously, we can't ignore the 800-pound gorilla in the middle of the room. The biggest news this week was the casting choice for the new Superman movie, and some of the, well, for the last couple of weeks has been some of the rumors. The major casting news was Diane Lane was cast as Martha Kent in the new Superman movie, which I'm just going to, just for ease, call Superman the Man of Steel because it's all a bit official at this point. And, wow. I mean, I, it wouldn't have been somebody that would have occurred to me, but once I gave about maybe even little as little as 10 minutes of thought, I'm like, yeah, that's actually pretty perfect. And I think what excites me most is Diane Lane is a fantastic actress. She's not only great looking, she can really carry a character. And that looks that excites me when it's inspired, when it kind of comes out of the blue, but you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I love that kind of casting. And this is definitely that. Some of the rumors cir circulating still, none of these are confirmed by any means. So put them on the rumor shelf. Keep them on the rumor shelf until we get official word. One rumor is Kevin Costner may be playing Jonathan Kent. Um, I don't necessarily hate that. I don't, but I'm not exactly thrilled. I can see it, but it wouldn't be the first person I would turn to. Now, the more it's set with me, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. But at this point, it's still just a rumor. So. We'll see, and he would actually look pretty good uh, beside Diane Lane. Those are that's a pretty good looking couple right there, and Diane Lane can act, and Kevin Costner can show up. Okay, I shouldn't have done that. That was kind of wrong, but 
All I'm saying is, given the right character, I've seen Kevin Costner do great things. Look at Silverado. Look at Field of Dreams. And then there are some other movies where he wasn't quite as uh, compelling as he could have been. Because he does have a great presence. It's just, he's kind of like, he's choosy about the roles he actually does a job on, if that makes sense. Some roles you can tell he's really having a good time and really getting into it. Other roles, he shows up, gives his dialogue, sometimes with a fake English accent, and moves on. Collects his paycheck, calls it a day. But that's not a, necessarily a bad thing in Jonathan Kent. He's no Glenn Ford, I'll tell you that. Some of the other rumors are, once again, we've got a resurgence of the General Zod character. Now, Zack Snyder has said, Zod's not in it. Those were Snyder's actual words. However, this rumor has been persisting and persisting, and there are sites out there that really just propagate rumors. Sometimes they pull it out of thin air. I'm not going to name that site. Clearly, if it's in the link section of supermanforever.com, it's not one of those. But, moving on, um, the rumor is that there, uh, there are two actors that are theoretically up for General Zod. One would be Viggo Mortensen. Vigo, you are like the buzzing of flies to him. I want to thank Douglas Meacham for making a uh, Ghostbusters 2 reference on my Facebook page. That lightened my day perfectly. Um, and plus, he's just he's a great guy. He's been a good good fan to have around. And anyway, but uh, Vigo Mortensen as General Zod, I don't know that I see it. I don't know. I don't necessarily hate the idea. But the other casting choice... Uh, the rumor that's around is Daniel Day-Lewis, which definitely makes me, you know, lift an eyebrow. Where are you going with this? Could be good, but I would really, if you're going to get Daniel Day-Lewis, put him in the Jor-El role. And you could probably even sell him on that. I, I mean, I, I don't see him playing General Zod. I don't see him playing a villain in a comic book movie. This guy's an Oscar nominee several times over and an Oscar winner. It, you could probably sell him on the Jor-El role because, I mean, let's face it, Marlon Brando played him in the original. And I think you could kind of sell him on filling those shoes. But eh, as good as he would be as Zod, I just can't see it happening. But at the same time, we don't even know that Zod is in it. Zack Snyder has denied Zod is in it. So I would not put any stock at all in those particular rumors at this time. But I could be wrong. Uh, most of the casting I'm seeing, uh, it seems to come out of nowhere. It's not even somebody on the radar. Diane Lane wasn't on the radar. Henry Cavill really wasn't that prominent on the radar. Other rumors were much stronger. So I would, uh, I'm not going to put any money on anybody in any specific role in this particular movie, especially since the rumors are running so rampant. And, uh, well, you know, let's go ahead and segue to the next story about the other Superman movie. The other Superman movie I'm referring to is called Superman Requiem. And what it is, in essence, is a deluxe, bigger budget fan film. Now, Gene Fillets is producing this at the moment. And uh, the cast includes Ian Virgo, Neil McDermott, Serena Loren, Amelia Tyler. And you can check it out. Uh, there's not much out there for it. But you can go to themanofsteelisback.com. And uh, this, uh, what it is, is they've assembled actual professionals to do, uh, well, in essence, most certainly a fan film. And it looks 
fantastic from what I'm seeing here. The pictures look good, the logo, the design. So it's something I'm you know really behind. And right now, if you go to that site, if you scroll down towards the bottom, you'll see a widget box for Indiegogo. And what that does is allows you to be part of the funding of that movie. Now, of course, I, I know that with what they're doing, it's tricky because I know they can't make money off of it or else Warner Brothers would shut them down. But let me go ahead and give you their description. Superman is the world's greatest superhero and law enforcement across the globe has come to rely on the Man of Steel. But when his powers are almost eradicated, he must overcome many obstacles to try and get those powers back. All whilst an evil mastermind plans to wreak havoc right in front of the fallen Superman's eyes. Now the story takes place in the Donner uh, Christopher Reeve universe and kind of follows on some of the events from Superman 1, 2, and Superman Returns. Uh, actually, it's supposed to be set approximately three years after the events of Superman Returns. So how can you help? You can go to Indiegogo.com slash Superman Requiem. And uh, there's also a link off of the Man of Steel is back. And you're actually able to contribute right there. Uh, you can use PayPal, credit card, so on and so forth. And there are many perks for what they're doing. If you contribute $20, you get a thanks in the credit during the closing credits of the final film and on IMDb. They call that the fourth elder. A third elder, you become associate producer by contributing $50. And you actually get that associate producer credit during the closing credits of the film and also on IMDb. And second elder, which is $100, you get the associate producer credit and also on IMDb. You get to be an on-set extra with an invitation to a screening and a poster. And First Elder, which is $500, you get an executive producer credit during the closing credits. And on IMDb, you get to be an on-set extra. You get the invitation to the screening, a poster, photo with cast and crew, and a script signed by the lead actor and director. Then there's Jor-El, the executive package, $700 con uh, contribution. You get all of that. Plus, you get a framed swatch of the screen-used Superman cape, copy of the Daily Planet newspaper prop, additional special thanks credit, and an invitation to the world premiere. Now, the top, which is called the Kal-El, Ultimate Executive, is a $1,000 contribution. You get all of that, invitation to the world premiere, and a character will also be named after you. At this point, there are two claimed on that. There are three available. Now, I myself, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I've contributed $50. So I've, I'm a third elder on that, and I'm excited to be a part of it. It's something I'm looking forward to. So I am certainly, you know, wanting everybody to know about this because, you know, we it's going to be a while before we see Superman the Man of Steel. And hopefully, you know, we get something good out of that. But when a fan is making a movie, especially when, you know, it's something that's done clearly not to make a profit, but out of love, I'm going to support that. So Indiegogo.com, contribute when you can, if you can. I know things are hard, so no pressure, but uh, it would be great if you could. So, And, uh, well, let's move on. That's really all the big news we had this week. I'm going to play a quick promo, and then we're going to come back and talk a little Superman the Animated Series. Rocketed from the Doom Planet Krypton, the baby Kal-El was found and raised by the Kents. Now grown, Clark Kent, as Superman, fights for truth and justice. But years later, a rocket holding his 17-year-old cousin, Kara Zor-El, lands on Earth. Now, living in Metropolis, she fights for truth and justice alongside her cousin as Supergirl. Together, they form the Superman family, who fight for truth, 
justice and the American way. The Superman Family Podcast is a bi-weekly podcast that covers any and all Superman-related books that fall under the umbrella of the Superman Family, from Power Girl all the way to Crypto the Superdog, as well as all your favorite Superman-related news and much, much more. Join me for some Superman Family fun, only at supermanfamily.com. Oh, and it's good to be back into Superman the Animated Series. And I apologize, you know, obviously with the time delay, a little thrown off. But, uh, hey, let's get back to it. So we're picking up this week with Superman the Animated Series Episode 2, which is the last son of Krypton Part 2, the second part of the premiere, which would have been in September of 2006. It was written by Alan Burnett and Paul Dini, directed by Scott Geralds and Kurt Gaeta, and music by Michael McHuston with the voice director, Andrea Romano. The episode starred Tim Daly as Superman Clark Kent, making his actual debut in this episode. Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, making her debut, and Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor. And Mike Farrell shows up uh, for briefly as Jonathan Kent, uh, along with his real-life wife, Shelley Faberis, as Martha Kent. George Zunda as Perry White, and David Kaufman as Jimmy Olsen, with Kelly Schmidt as a young Lana Lane. Now, the episode opens with a flashback to Part 1, uh, Destruction of Krypton, Jor-El tried to warn them, baby shot into space. And we pick up literally immediately after that as the ship exits, hi- exits hyperspace and enters our solar system. And then, of course, we pan down to Jonathan and Martha Ken on a Kansas road driving. The ship lands. It lands. It does not crash. It lands. Now, it cuts Jonathan and Martha off, as per normal, but it lands of its own accord into, in a pond. So, of course, Jonathan and Martha investigate and find, hey, baby Kal-El. Of course, we've seen this play out several different ways. This way has a nice tender thing because, really, the, as usual, the Kents fall in love with Clark. But I kind of got a little bit more of that emotion in this episode. A nice little bit to that as they're discussing what to do with the child. Uh, after Jonathan finds out that the kid has a grip... They, uh, Martha suggests some names like Christopher or Kevin or Kirk. Of course, a reference, uh, reference to Christopher Reeve or Kirk Allen. And, uh, of course, they finally settle on Martha's maiden name, Clark. So here we have Clark Kent, formerly Kal-El, now named in our animated universe. And we flash ahead to Clark in high school getting another perfect score on a test while Lana gets a D-. So after class, Lana chases after Clark, and Clark tells her, you know, he's been feeling weird. Now, Lana's had a crush on Clark since she was three. We know this because she tells Clark a little awkwardly. But we're, we're starting to see Clark's powers develop, like super hearing and x-ray, and he, you know, displays these, and Clark hears a car going out of control, and he speeds off, much like we would see on Smallville. And it turns out that the car is an RV, which is careening towards a gas station, and it goes plowing into the tanker that's filling the tanks, causing a huge explosion. Well, Clark jumps in, rescues the couple driving the RV, but as he gets them to safety, the RV is engulfed in flames, and he realizes there's a little girl inside. So he turns around, rips the window out of the back, and takes the little girl, and they, the, a huge explosion happens. And of course, Clark walks out unharmed. His clothes are a little worse for wear, and the little girl is safe, but unharmed. So Clark takes off, goes back home, 
and, you know, really is talking to Paul on this porch, which is where Clark and Paul uh, talks should happen, is on the front porch of the Kent farm. But Clark shows off his strength by bending a bar and uses his heat vision to show Paul, you know, exactly how it works. And, you know, Clark's always felt different. And even before he, they told him he was adopted. So Jonathan looks at Martha and says, I think it's time. And the kids take the young Clark out into the barn where they show him the rocket that he came to earth in. And once again, we've seen this play out several different ways. This way has a neat little twist to it because the box we saw Laura, Laura slide into the ship before it takes off. It's in the rocket. And Jonathan says, hey, we've tried to get this to work for quite some time. It hasn't done anything. Maybe you have the magic touch. And sure enough, Clark does. As it, you know, comes to life, the screen on there rotates into place before locking into the Superman symbol we know. And we actually see this projected onto Clark's forehead from there. And with that, Clark is able to see his parents, Jor-El and Lyra, in the lab. And they explain Krypton's destruction and how his powers work that his body absorbs energy from the yellow sun. Now, back in the barn, realizing exactly what he's just been told, that he's not from this planet, he's an alien from a planet that's now dead, and the, seeing his actual parents for the first time, Clark just loses it. It's like having this huge bomb dropped on him. So he goes running into the cornfields, and in his run, he accidentally initially takes flight across the ravine. Now, this kind of triggers something, and he turns around, tries it again, and next thing you know, Clark's taken to the air. And he's just actually, somehow this switches something in him, and he just loves his newfound powers, because he flies around Smallville, returns to the Kent farm where he is embraced by his foster parents. And then suddenly we're in Metropolis, where news reports of a guardian angel is on the TV. There was a young girl that fell out of a 30-story building when a red-winged angel saved her. Now, watching this report on TV is our intrepid girl reporter, Lois Lane, debating the existence of angels at the Daily Planet. And she's really ticked when she finds out that her investigative report has been bumped off for this, what she would call a fluff piece. This is a great Lois Lane. Dana Delaney is one of my favorite voice, uh, favorite interpretations of Lois Lane. I mean, she just gets it. Tough as nails. But she has a certain quality to her voice that definitely keeps your attention, definitely wants you to be, you definitely want to be a part of this Lois Lane's world. And Perry lets, uh, lets Lois's yelling roll off his back because he's Perry White, he's used to it. And he kind of introduces the Daily Planet's newest reporter, Clark Kent. Now this is the first time we see Cl- the Clark we're going to see for the rest of the series, of course. The normal bespectacled, broad-shouldered, suit-wearing Clark Kent. And Perry wants Lois to show Clark around, but she's planning on covering the great billionaire philanthropist Lex Luthor's newest weapons display. But Perry manages to somewhat convince her to take Clark along. On their way out of the office, Clark is introduced to Jimmy Olsen, and by introduced I mean Jimmy Olsen runs right smack into him. And while Clark is trying to help Jimmy pick up his pictures, Lois slips out in the elevator. I'm telling you, this is a great Lois Lane. This is the, the Lois and Clark dynamic is great in this show, and I can't wait to get down further episodes where we're going to see more of this. And at the LexCorp uh, display, Lois chides a TV broadcaster and discovers that Clark is already at the event covering, getting quotes. And uh, this ticks Lois off to no end. 
She apparently underestimated Clark Kent, as she is wont to do. Now, everybody's directed into the main hall, where they're shown the Lexo suit, which is a tank-like battle suit. And on the video, the suit tears through some tanks on screen. And with that, you know, with that demonstration, we actually see our villain, Lex Luthor himself, show up on stage, much to the adulation of the crowd. But as uh, Lex is kind of giving his speech about wanting to end war, Clark hears some incoming aircraft, which is armed to begin, and which is armed, and they begin to attack the expo. Now, it's a, what it is, it's a small one-man craft, which is a bit like a bike, like the bikes we saw in the last episode, chasing Jarrell. And a larger craft carrying somebody we will become familiar with, but I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. If you know, let's keep it under our hats. And with that, with the attack underway, Clark jumps behind the stage into a private place, opens his shirt to reveal the familiar S symbol. And the larger of the crafts, snags the Lexo suit and, and manages to hoist it onto the vehicle and flies out of the roof, causing structural damage that almost finds Lois getting squashed by a giant beam until something stops it. And here we have it, folks. The debut of Superman, officially, in full costume, holding a beam above Lois Lane, saving her. He doesn't stick around to talk. He flings the beam off because he has villains to chase after, so he flies after him. In the air, Superman takes on the two one-man crafts, the little motorcycle crafts, and they try to fire on him, but of course he's invulnerable, so he just kind of shrugs it off, and Superman actually easily crashes the two of them into each other, where the craft's pilots float down on parachutes. Kind of like the old G.I. Joes, you can't show anybody getting in a crash without a parachute. So Superman is left to focus on the main craft, the larger one-man craft. Now, the craft fires a missile at Superman, and he gives it some chase, but manages to outdo it with some maneuvering. Unfortunately, the missile actually hits a commercial airliner that's nearby and clips the wing off. Superman gasps as he knows he's been put in an impossible scenario. He must either let the villain go and save the craft or vice, or let a lot of people die. And with that, the episode ends on that cliffhanger. Now... I'm sure when it was, when it's played out in a you know self-contained three-part or well one episode three parts combined into one episode, the the episode doesn't feel quite as lopsided. It's definitely the middle act, but we with this one you know we had a whole episode on Krypton where we actually developed a side character like Lara's dad. With this, it moved this this particular section as a standalone episode moved a little too quick, a little too lopsided. It wasn't quite halfway. Uh, you know, half Smallville, half Metropolis. But at the same time, we got to keep in mind the context that this is an animated series uh, designed somewhat for children. I think it was for older children, kind of like Batman the Animated Series, wanted it to appeal to a broad audience. But with this one, not a lot happened. No, that's not true. Actually, we got the debut of Lois Lane, which is phenomenal. Dana Delaney nails it. Clancy Brown doesn't really get to vamp too much as Lex Luthor, but he's going to have plenty of time to really suck us into that evil. And Tim Daly, oddly enough, felt like he didn't have a lot to do because the first half in Smallville wasn't necessarily him doing the voice or doing the normal voice we would know. It was him doing a much younger Clark. And then Superman, while he's in costume, really doesn't say much, which is kind of something that I remember Bruce Tim talking about when they were developing the show, that they wanted him to come in, save the day, and then take off. They wanted him to be a more... Not darker, 
but more driven character. And you definitely see that here. He doesn't stick around to say something to Lois. It doesn't say, I'm a friend. He saves her, does what he needs to do, takes off after the villain. So it's a very focused Man of Steel. And unfortunately, we don't get to see a lot of his powers displayed here. The action sequence we get uh, really feels like it was broken off in the middle a little awkwardly. So as a standalone episode, it was okay. The animation looks good. We definitely get a lot. what I like about it uh, is the continuity that we get here um, with the introduction of the character piloting the craft, who's going to become a character much more important down the road. And of course, Lex Luthor introducing himself. You don't get to play around too much with it, but I'd like to have seen more in this debut, a little bit more of uh, Clancy Brown's really deep baritone voice. Overall, I'm going to give the episode three S shields out of five. Not as good as the first one, but definitely pushes the story. Definitely really gets us into the world of Superman. The, the animated world of Superman, I should be correct. So I'm going to play another promo, then we're going to come back, and we're going to do our reviews as per normal. And this particular promo may not be about a DC character. Hmm. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second... Hey there, webheads! 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spin of Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time! So strap yourself in, and here's the hosts! This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work! Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why, no, Betty. I'm seeing it with all my friends, the Amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited, too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. So now we're here to the review section. As usual, we're going through all the post-Infinite Crisis books uh, featuring Superman. And we're going to continue Last Sun with Action Comics number 846, which is part three of a story written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner, penciled and inked by Adam Kubert, colored by Dave Stewart, lettered by Rob Lay, edited by Nachi Castro and Matt Idelson. And we open in the very near, uh, pretty much where we left off in the previous issue with General Zod, Ursa, and Nan now inside the Fortress of Solitude. And the trio has activated the Jor-El program, and Zod asks what Kryptonian history has to say about him. And Jor-El spills on how he found the Phantom Zone, a dimension where time stands still and the inhabitants become almost ghost-like. 
And I'm going to do a whole episode on the Phantom Zone, so I'm not going to get too far into that right now. And the Kryptonians used the zone as a prison, with its first entry being a rogue scientist named Jax Ur. And Jax Ur was responsible for the destruction of Krypton's moon, and theoretically the city of Kandor, which was a colony built there. And while Kandor was believed to be incinerated in the blast, nobody knew for sure what the city's fate was. And many more prisoners followed Jax Ur, that's one, that one's hard to say, Jax Ur, into the Phantom Zone over the years. Now Zod himself was placed in the Phantom Zone by Jor-El, who was really strong-armed into the task. And the council basically laid down an ultimatum that Zod Ursa Non would be executed for murder and high treason unless Jor-El became their jailer, and kept quiet about the impending doom of the planet Krypton. And it's inter- interesting to note that Jor-El refers to the brute Non as his former mentor. As we all know, Non pretty much growls and is very beast-like. And upon hearing this version of the story, Zod's filled with rage, and the trio explore the fortress a little more, and happen to see Monel in the Phantom Zone viewer. And Monel, who is seconds from death, held in that void from lead poisoning. And Zod tells his companions that the Phantom Zone holds the key to their future, as does their son. And that cues a perfect scene change. Metropolis, the Daily Planet building. Lois Lane and Clark Kent arrive to introduce their newly adopted son, Christopher Kent, a.k.a. Zod and Ursa's son, to their co-workers at the planet. And the two try to get their story straight as Batman is taking care of the paperwork, and Clark says passing Chris off as a separate entity from the Kryptonian kid will be easy as putting on a pair of glasses. Not so much. The Kryptonian child is still big news, and the three are standing in one of the world's biggest newspapers. And Perry's bellowing just as they walk out about how Jimmy had better bring him a picture of the Kryptonian child or he might lose Olsen's paycheck. And Jimmy snaps a picture of the new family with his new camera. Because in the last issue with Bizarro, the, his original camera got destroyed. Now this would be a problem if a blast of heat vision hasn't, doesn't rip through the office and destroy Jimmy's camera. And the Daily Planet comes under attack with multiple beams of heat vision ripping across the office from outside. Jimmy ducks and activates his signal watch, while Clark starts to change to su- into Superman. But the change is interrupted by Non slamming into Clark, knocking him out of the building, through two more buildings, before the two land several stories below in a park. Superman manages to get in one good punch before Non knocks him back to the ground. And General Zod comes face to face with the son of Jor-El, telling him that he has abandoned his Kryptonian heritage and adopted Earth's. Zod is surprised that Superman seems to know him and takes offense to being called a criminal. Meanwhile, Ursa is tearing up the Daily Planet building, throwing Chris's ship through the walls, pursuing Lois and Christopher. Ursa wants her son back, but Chris, a.k.a. Lore Zod, does not want to go with them. Back at the park, Zod tells Superman that he could have saved Krypton if not for the actions of Jor-El, and he plans to transform Earth into a new Krypton. As Superman battles Zod, Ursa manages to get Chris away just as the situation gets even worse. Countless ships, just like Zod's and Christopher's, come rocketing down from the sky, crashing into Metropolis, based on the signal being resonated from Christopher's ship. Now Superman rushes to stop one of them, which opens to reveal Jack Sur, now imbued with strength from the Yellow Sun. And Jack Sur slams Superman back to the ground, where Zod greets him with many more pods opening behind him. So the Earth is now being bombarded by Kryptonians. And Zod activates a Phantom Zone projector. And Clark is thrust into the Phantom Zone, a void from which there is no escape. So a Kryptonian invasion has begun, and Superman has been in pro- imprisoned, possibly permanently.
to be continued. Now this issue kicks it up a notch. There's a lot of action in here, and of course the Bizarro issue definitely had some action. But with this, it's just a lot happens all at once. And looking at the story, really the, this being part three of what was to be a five-part series, this is the moment where it should be happening. We're looking at good story structure. Everything should be hitting the fan at this point. And even though we're seeing a really different design for Zod, Ursa, and Non with the hooded uh, trench coat style and the odd goggles, we still see a lot being drawn from Superman the movie. Um, and of course, the Fortress of Solitude, um, page one and two, well, the splash on page two and three. And then on page four and five, that splash, you actually see the hula hoop version of the Phantom Zone, uh, well, the Kryptonian prison. And here, uh, there, there, on these two pages, on four and five, Jor-El looks odd. It looks like he's wearing some pajamas rather than what we're seeing as the normal Kryptonian clothing. And on page six and seven, we actually entered the trophy room. Now, what I like about this version of the fortress is it does take a lot of inspiration, of course, from Superman the movie, but you can see some of the Silver Age tropes such as the you know trophy room itself, the Phantom Zone viewer, and of course, in this scene, we actually get the first appearance in this continuity of Mon-El. And on page 10, uh, not only does the Daily Planet look fantastic and look like it does in Superman Returns, a nice continuity piece is they're repairing the pavement where the bus hit it last issue. I'm a big continuity person. Now, if something... This is something that didn't have to happen. But I love that they put that detail in. And I don't know who would be responsible for it, whether it would be the writer if Cooper himself took the initiative. But bravo for that small piece. Also on the same page, we see a really good shot of Clark Kent. You kind of buy Kubert's uh, Clark Kent Superman di dynamic. Not quite as much as Frank Quitely, but you kind of get it. And I love the fact that, it, it. well, in this version, it looks more a little bit like Brandon Routh. But if, once we get to Gary Frank, we're going to see a definite Christopher Reeve-inspired Superman. But I like the, that it wasn't completely Brandon Routh. It definitely had some resemblance, but not a straight caricature. And on pages 14 to 15, the action hits the fan right, just right. With the beams coming through the office, looking fantastic, by the way. I love that the office looks like an actual newsroom. And of course, Jimmy's camera gets destroyed again, which is becoming a running gag, kind of like Mulder losing his gun. And of course, the signal watch looks fantastic. It looks, I really want that actual watch design. Um, what it is, it's basically the Superman symbol uh, in silver. It looks like a uh, fossil watch. But definitely the action kicks up really quick and stays paced really well. And we're getting a lot of splash pages in this issue in a good way. Uh, this proves, you know, I, I believe in the first part, you know, some of the splash pages were a bit awkward. Here it works really well, like on pages 18 and 19, the splash of Non kicking Clark out of the building. And of course, the smaller panels of them going through multiple buildings before crash landing. The issue looks superb. Kubert's been very even in this issue as far as the art goes. And it really seems like he's catching his stride because Zod looks fantastic when cast by the light. And the first time these two come face to face. And Superman getting a beat down. Still may, it doesn't look pathetic because Non is such a big character. You kind of get it. You kind of expect some ruffian, roughing up. And of course, I like that the ship being the signal still manages to make it to town, to the city. 
it kind of keeps everything. It's a very tight story, and that's what I like. And one of the best splash pages in the entire issue, in my opinion, is pages 26 and 27 with all of the ships coming crashing down based on that resonating signal. You really get that oh crap feeling. And this really could have been looked at as a ripoff of Superman 2 if they hadn't taken this particular left turn. And of course, the cliffhanger of Clark being trapped in the Phantom Zone was mind-blowing. And I'm going to give the issue, I mean, the art looked fantastic, the splash pages were appropriately placed, so I'm going to give it 4S shields out of 5. Now next week, we're going to look at Action Comics Annual number 10 before coming back to Action Comics number 847, where it will not be what you expect. And that's all I'm going to comment for the moment. Let's move on to Superman. So, Superman number 659, an issue entitled Angel, written with framing sequences by Kurt Busiek, co-plotted by Fabian Nicieza. Guest penciled by Peter Vale, inked by Jesus Marino, colored by Bruno Hang, lettered by Richard Starkings, and edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. Now, this issue was supposed to be a crypto story, which would have been nice, since we haven't really seen or heard from crypto in some time. Instead, Editorial decided to pull that story and give us this footnote of sorts to Camelot Falls. I haven't been able to track down the specifics of why that was. I'm going, I've been going back over the message boards from this time, and Busick himself wasn't entirely clear on the reasoning either. Either way, this issue begins in the Fortress of Solitude, which seems to be happening a lot. Superman is reviewing the news feeds, looking back on his recent battle with Subject 17 and his long talk with Arion. And Arion's words from the end of last issue are really haunting Superman, and he, he finds himself thinking back to an encounter from the early days of his Superman career. Cue the flashback. Uh, back in the day, as Superman is flying around on night patrol, he sees an older lady who's about to be hit by a car full of malicious drunks. Superman stops the car in normal Superman fashion with his body. Now, the lady thinks Superman must be an angel as he flies off with the car load. The lady returns home to Suicide Slum, where she is mocked by some punks at the doorstep for her faith in God. She tells them that her name is Barbara Johnson, and then she evangelizes the punks. Before retiring to her apartment and watching her old television as Superman saves a commuter train that is derailing as if it's an answer to the prayer she was saying. And she takes Superman's appearance as a sign from God and opens up a scrapbook filled with superhero sighting, which she believes all are miracles from God. And as a few days pass, Barbara comes across a robbery on an armored car and steps up to the gun-toting robbers, telling them to stop what they're doing or the Lord will punish them. Just as the armed robbers are about to shoot Barbara, Superman shows up and makes quick work of them. Barbara falls to her knees in front of Superman, proclaiming him to be an angel of the Lord. Superman commends her for her desire to do good, but warns her against putting herself in harm's way. And once again, Barbara comes across a group of vandals, tearing up a local store and calls them out. Superman once again shows up, and a week later, Superman Barbara shows up. Pardon me, Barbara shows up at a drive-by, which Superman stops, and again at a crack house. So at this point, Superman knows Barbara is proactively seeking out these situations in order to call down her angel, Superman. So later at the Daily Planet, Perry assigns Lois and Clark to cover Barbara for the paper, and Clark relays his fears to Lois. By way of an allegory, since this is before he and Lois knew, before were a couple and she knew his secret. He asked Lois what would happen if Barbara prayed for Superman and he couldn't come. 
And meanwhile, at a suicide slum church, Barbara addresses the congregation, and she leads them all outside to prove that she can pray for Super- Superman and he will come. She marches right into the den of the Bay Lords, a local gang, and confronts them with the entire congregation watching. Barbara is so devout in her faith that she stands bravely as one of the gang members points a gun and shoots her. Unfortunately, Superman at that time is at Star, Lab, uh, Star Labs outposting in Antarctica, fighting an electrical monster. So Superman is not able to save Barbara. Days later, he visits her in the hospital. She has not died. And he is apologizing to Barbara, explaining that he was just one man. And Barbara wakes up and explains that you know, she had gotten too proud and thought she held the power, not God. And she tells Superman that her shooting had a purpose, which Superman isn't clear on until he does a quick fly over a suicide slum. And the Bay Demons gang have all been rounded up and arrested. As Barbara's shooting, Barbara's shooting has motivated the neighborhood association into fighting back and reclaiming their home. As Superman flies away, Barbara smiles and asks, how is he not an angel? Back in the present, Superman finishes up reviewing Barbara's story. The years have passed, and her influence is still felt. Even Bruce Wayne supported her by giving the association a check for $50 million. So Superman shuts off the program and thinks over Barbara and Arion's ideal that Superman should let humanity defend for itself. And the issue closes with, closes with Superman looking over his fortress with that decision weighing heavily on his mind. And I won't lie, the you know overall this issue was a little awkward. Um, looking at page one, we have a lot of pictures of Carlos Pacheco's Arion and some pages from, or some images from the previous issues, kind of plastered into some of the viewing screens on the Fortress of Solitude, which, if I'm not mistaken, throws things off, because this fortress, the the crystal inversion that we saw, didn't come into effect till the end of Up, Up and Away. And okay, you know, I'll, I'll let it pass because we're not clear on exactly what Fortress of Solitude. Superman was using prior to that. But using the issue to go back to the beginning of his career, it's a little awkward. Right now we have Superman Confidential that, you know, was really good for looking back on that. Now the art is actually pretty sharp, I won't lie. Peter Vale definitely has some pencils and I, I can't remember seeing him do anything else, but definitely has a lot of detail. And of course the coloring is superb because once again, uh, well, Bruno Hang is actually doing that. I thought Dave Stewart, even though I just said that a few minutes ago. It definitely has an image feel to it as far as, you know, some of the detail. Reminds me a lot of the early uh, Eric Larson look. But uh, once again, you know, we're seeing a lot of these superheroes come out. Uh, her scrapbook, uh, we see Beyond the Unknown, the Challengers of the Unknown. We're starting to see, you know, small snippets of Aquaman. Well, Superman was supposed to be the first hero, so this would fit in, but it, it, there was always something I thought about as far as Superman stories, as, as especially in the post-9-11 world, which this one doesn't take place in, but imagine the, in, in the real world the reaction to a man who can fly, he can shoot heat vision out of his eyes, he can basically, to quote the crash test dummies, crash into any bank in the United States. And most of the time in most origins, you know, we really see an open armed response to Superman. But I think in, in the context, you know, of the real world, I think there would be a lot of skepticism and there would definitely be a lot of, in terms of religion, there'd be a lot of response 
especially in Christian religion where the Antichrist is part of that, that perhaps there would be that definitely definitely uh, look at him as a potential Antichrist. And of course, there would be people like Barbara Johnson who do see him as some sort of sign, as some sort of revelation. So that was, you know, to look back on this with that kind of response, her response was definitely interesting. But I don't know that really, even though we were, it's the story is bookended within the context of Camelot Falls. I just don't think it fits in there. It's nothing more than, as I said, a footnote. And it, even with Superman having that decision weighing on him, it still felt shoehorned in. And I'd rather have seen the crypto issue. And I know that this was still, this wasn't necessarily a fill-in issue because what they did was just slide 660 up and put it in that slot. They just switched it around. But I would rather have seen the crypto story that was intended because I think the pacing of this, after having had so much drama in the last few issues, so much looking at the future and the last issue ending with Jimmy being the last person on, you know, on the planet, more or less, this issue just didn't step up the game. And or give us a breather because we're still within that context. So I'm going to give this issue, I'm going to give it two and a half S shields out of five. I'm um, actually going to kick that up to three. I'm going to stick it at three because the art did kind of save it in the cover with Superman's cape forming red wings. Looks fantastic. So three S shields out of five, but a little awkwardly placed in terms of the storyline that we've been following so far. And that brings us to Superman Batman number 33 which is the conclusion to the Enemies Among Us story. And the story of this issue was written by Mark Barhyden, penciled by Joe Benitez, inked by Victor Lamas, colored by Guy Major, lettered by Rob Lay, with a cover by Phil Jimenez, Andy Lanning, and Moose Bowman. And it was edited by Eddie Berganza and Adam Schlagman, with a special thanks to Don Ho. As in, like, the Tiny Bubbles guy? I want to know the story behind that. But the issue begins with the brief recap of the story so far. Aliens all over Earth are being controlled by black rocks, which are actually sentient symbiotic creatures. And the rocks have begun falling from the sky all the world over, and our own Jimmy Olsen has become infected by one after picking it up as a huge alien armada fills the skies. And that brings us up to Superman, having recently been freed from the influence of the black rock, faces down Batman, who is currently infected. And this fight goes on for several pages until the Black Rock frees Bruce after Clark convinces it that he will actually kill Bruce to free him. And elsewhere, Jimmy Olsen shows up and begins to beat Lex Luthor, who is shocked to see Despero freed from his prison on Oa by the very aliens threatening the Earth. And Despero wants Lex to tell him how to kill the one being between him, his friends, and conquering the human race. And that would be Superman, who at that moment is once again facing down Batman, both of them in their right minds, um, ready to fly into action. They gear up and go out to fight the alien menace armed with the last resort of a nuclear bomb, which uh, Clark does not want Bruce to, loot, to use. Clark is convinced that, hey, I can talk this down. I can get this right. While Bruce is ready to take the absolute necessary steps. And Batman goes underground to plant the bomb, giving Clark 10 minutes to reason with the aliens. Unfortunately, Jimmy Olsen shows up and battles him. And meanwhile, topside Clark is fighting the aliens, finds himself overtaken. So both of them are captured. Batman's brought to the scene with his fingers still on the button. 
Despero explains that it is mankind's own darkness that is prompting the alien invaders to destroy Earth. And Superman convinces the alien invaders to look into his mind again, since last time what they saw was doubt. So now, untainted by Despero's influence, the invaders actually see the hope that Superman carries in him. And Batman takes out Luthor before Despero can be told how to destroy Superman, and Clark is able to physically defeat Despero. So it all comes down to Batman now. With his finger poised on the detonator button, Batman uses his trust in Clark to decide to drop the detonator, which convinces the aliens to release all control over the Earth's alien population. So the danger's over, the day is saved, and the alien invaders leave the planet without a word. Afterward, Batman reflects on the event and the fact that Clark saved the world with a simple act of faith and decides to look at Superman as a friend. And the issue ends with the two of them in a friendly handshake. Okay, this storyline has not wowed me one bit. Uh, Ethan Van Skyver did some of the early issues, which look good. And admittedly, I, I, like, I like the art here. I quite enjoy Joe, Joe Benitez. His pencils kind of remind me, and I hate to make this reference again, but a lot of the good, better elements of when Todd McFarlane draws Batman. Some of the exaggeration, but his Batman manages to remain sleek. And his Superman looks a lot like Pacheco's Superman. Uh, slightly less... Uh, Less sharp, less crisp. But uh, so Superman definitely gets kind of, with the exception of certain pages, he gets the short end of the stick on the art spectrum. I like Jimmy on page one being infected by the rock. There's something about that image that is just freaky enough to do what it needs to do. And on page two uh, and three, since it's a splash, Batman infected by the black rock just looks hardcore. It's something that wasn't delivered last issue when we saw him, because it looked a little too abstract. But here it looks sharp and it works. Now the battle between Superman and Batman goes on for several pages. And that's kind of a downfall of this issue. Um, really, the banter between them is... Uh, it's cartoony. And I don't mean that in a good way. And I do like the fact that... Uh, the entity it free, is, it leaves Bruce because Clark says, I know Bruce Wayne, this isn't what he'd want, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to give him that peace. So that actually works for me, but overall it was just another slam-bang fight between the two of them. Now something that bothered me on pages 10 and 11 when Lex Luthor shows up, he seems to have gained weight between the issues, and of course that's just the interpretation of the artist, but Luthor hasn't he looks sort of like early John Byrne version with a lot of bulk on him. Where recently Lex has gone back to the smaller, more svelte size. So that's just, that's a nitpick, I won't lie. It, it does, throws me off just a little bit. But Despero looks phenomenal. When he shows up on page 12, he looks just as hardcore as he should. Unfortunately, he just doesn't play out hardcore. And that's kind of a real downfall of the issue. I mean, really, when you look at it, this issue is just a a lot of, I don't know, a lot of fighting that isn't necessary. Uh, there's no great draw to the to the violence in here. I like a well-choreographed fight scene. Looking back at, you know, the Action Comics issue, it was a fight that looked good. It upped the bar. Here, the action is muffled and just kind of annoying. And the idea that Batman is willing to go to the point of using a nuclear bomb to end this. Shouldn't Batman have a better plan? Batman's always the character that's one step ahead. 
even though he may not play all the cards on the table. So that one, it just bothered me. It seemed like, I don't think Verheiden ever had a grip on these characters all the way through this. And his entire idea of the alien invasion was a little bit contrived and annoying. And really, last issue, we saw Lobo show up, and it never had a payoff other than a nice chuckle. So overall, the the entire storyline has been stilted, it's been awkward, and Despero is taken out way too easily. And for something that, for such a, a major villain as Despero, we really should have seen something play out that would have been a little bit more, I don't know, dramatic. Now the art looks sharp, so that kind of saves the issue, but still I have to give it a 2.5 out of, fi- of, of 5S shields. And that brings us at last to Superman Confidential number two, which features Darwin Cook and Tim Sale as storytellers. I don't know if they co-wrote and co-drew, but uh, Dave Stewart did the colors, Richard Starkings did the letters, and the entire issue was edited by Mark Ciarlo and Tom Palmer Jr. And the issue opens with the large meteor of kryptonite we saw last issue narrating again kind of continuing its own story, it spent five years at the Buddhist temple before being forcibly taken by a man with a scar over his eye. Back in the present, Lois continues the interview with Anthony Gallo that we kind of left awkwardly at the end of last issue. Gallo is the casino owner of the Utopia Casino, being investigated by the Daily Planet. Now, Jimmy and Clark listen in from their post in the old printer building, while Anthony sets Lois up for a dinner date in a tour of the casino, and click and Lois collects on a bet with a with a fellow reporter. Back at their post, Clark uses this as a chance to get away and takes off. So as Superman, he flies to help with the volcanic eruption we saw on the TV conveniently. Just as Lois waits for their date. And while Clark is, you know, definitely worried about not seeing Lois, unfortunately he gets overtaken by the lava and feels like he's going to suffocate as he's pulled under. And meanwhile, Lois relents and calls up Anthony Gallo for dinner. Now, Gallo himself shows up to drive her to the casino as Jimmy listens in. Meanwhile, in Smallville, a singed Clark Kent shows up at the Kent farm, which startles Martha. Now, as Lois and Anthony walk through the lobby of the Utopia, which has multiple meteors and large rocks on display, that will be a plot point later. Clark is explaining that he panicked back at the volcano. And he was absolutely terrified. At this point, Clark doesn't know the extent of his invulnerability. And he was pulled under and actually started breathing in the lava. And of course, Clark is invulnerable, but he freaked. He just totally freaked and came up out of the pit like a mad, well, like Superman flying out of a pit and scared the villagers to the point where one lady even threw herself into the pits because everybody thought he was a demon from the pits. And with that, Jonathan steps outside, and Clark follows and apologizes, because he thinks Jonathan is disappointed in him. But Pa explains, he explains that he isn't disappointed at all. But Jonathan simply wants Clark not to lay the burden of those near-death experiences on Martha, because it causes her too much worry. And Clark promises to come to Pa in the future whenever he has an experience like that one. And basically, Pa says, putting that kind of a worry on a woman is too much. Meanwhile, back at Metropolis, Anthony Gallo drops Lois off at her apartment, and they set up a second date for the next day at, the, at a benefit. And as Lois is about to enter her building, she notices Superman floating above her and awkwardly says hi. And once again, the issue abruptly ends. This was definitely a story written for trade. There's no doubt about that. Which isn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. Um, 
per se. I mean, granted, when you look at the cover price, two ninety nine. I want a complete, a uh, semi complete story. Uh, we definitely lead up to a cliffhanger. That's what a comic is supposed to do. And here we just get an awkward pause. Now, really, there's a lot of standout art in this issue, so I, it's kind of excusable. For example, on page four, we see a really great-looking Lois. I love the way Lois is coming off because she is spunky, she is powerful, but you know she manages to look cute at the same time. And Anthony Gallo is an interesting—that's uh, uh, a good word for an interesting semi-pseudo villain, maybe an anti-hero, walking around with his ring with its green stone. Yeah, it's kind of obvious if you're if you're reading through it. Jimmy looks fantastic. Clark, of course, when Tim Sale draws Clark, I just love it. But overall, the issue, I, I don't have a lot of uh, specific notes beyond the idea of Clark getting scared in the lava. Of course, this is the early days. You can get away with things like that. It's not Batman having a bladder spasm. It's somebody being drawn in by lava. Somebody who doesn't know the full extent of their powers. Somebody who is not entirely sure he, he might be able to be killed by this. Superman does need to breathe after all. But there is a, I think the scene where Clark shows up in the kitchen with his costume completely singed, looking just freaked, just seals it for me. And, you know, nobody tells a really great early day story quite like Tim Sale. Now, of course, the meteors in the, in the lobby, of course, that's going to come into play. Of course, we've been following the story of a, a meteor or something inside of a meteor for for the last two issues. Of course, that's going to come into play, and it's put out on the table fairly fairly obviously, but not club you over the head obvious. It's that's actually decent storytelling. But I think one scene out of out of the whole issue that stands out is Clark coming out of the lava, spewing out the lava out of his lungs, and this, he's talking about there. There's a dog near him, barking at him. He says, you know what they say, they can smell fear. And the idea of Superman feeling fear, I mean, I don't think it's out of character for him to feel fear. Obviously, at the moment, he's fearing for his own life. Um, later, he'll, you know, of course, care about Lois and Jimmy. And But at the same time, we're talking about a being that literally throws himself into danger on a daily basis. Heck yeah, there's going to be times he gets scared. I mean, there's times when he may really think it's it's going to be the end. And is it cowardly? I don't think so, because he continues to fight the never-ending battle. So, maybe that's a lesson to be taken from this issue. Even though it ends awkwardly, it has a fantastic cover of Lois and Jimmy. I love the, the pattern they use, the texture pattern. That's something that definitely draws your eye to it. It's definitely a gorgeous-looking book. If it was just not, if the story didn't end so awkwardly at the end of every issue. I think it's a pacing issue. But still, it's a great story, it's a great read, it's a great looking book. So I'm going to give it 3.5 stars out of 5 out of 5. I think I believe I said that. Sorry about that. 3.5 out of 5 as shields. And I'm going to play another promo and we'll come back and read a couple of emails. Hopefully my voice lasts out. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman. 
Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. So the first email I have this week is from Mr. Billy Hogan, who is the host of the Superman Fan Podcast. Always love hearing from Billy, love his podcast. If you're not listening, uh, check him out at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com or over at the Superman uh, Podcast Network. And Billy uh, wrote in about episode 15, about uh, last episode, talking about All-Star Superman. And Billy writes, Mr. Weeder, I really enjoyed this episode, but then I always enjoy your podcast. Well, thank you, Billy. All-Star Superman is on my short list of favorite Superman stories. I'd rank it fourth. The others are, number three, For the Man Who Has Everything, number two, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and number one, The Team of Luthor and Brainiac from Superman number 167. And I was a little surprised when you said you felt issue number nine was the weakest issue of the miniseries. I won't say you're wrong, because reading comics is a subjective thing, that we all react differently to the same stories, much like Bizarro and Zabarro were opposites to Superman, I felt that Barel and Lilo belonged in that same category. They were Superman without tempering influence of his Midwestern American values, arrogant and a feeling of superiority to the primitive humans. And at the end of the issue, when they learned why Kellel, aka Superman, is the greatest Kryptonian of all, he found a way, like he always does, of saving lives. In sending them to the Phantom Zone, Superman has not only saved Barel and Lilo, but given them a new purpose. Great show as always, Billy Hogan. Thank you, Billy. I, I appreciate your praise. Now, I I wanted to touch on this a little bit earlier, but um, I, as I said, I think it was just coming off that Bizarro and Zabarro storyline. I think if this story had been earlier in the run, it would have been one of my favorites. And I have nothing against it as a general rule, but at the same time, when you're eating a steak dinner and the meat's perfect, look cooked perfectly and... The sides are, are exactly what you want, and everything is great. Your least favorite bite is still a great steak. So it, it was still a good story. I mean, uh, there's not anything I don't like about All-Star Superman uh, overall. Small gripes, nothing big. But I think in the context of the DVD when watching it with the Barrel and Lilo scenes I included, I think in that context it suddenly fit perfectly for me. Because it took out the big story, the two-part story before, and still kind of nestled it well within what was happening in the overall Lex Luthor arc. So I think it was just a matter of go, having gone through those two issues before that, and then you know going through the the, the issues that that followed. Not saying it was a bad issue, just saying it was it was maybe the wrong time in the series. And along that same lines, I'm actually really excited because. A friend of the uh, From Crisis to Crisis podcast left a comment on my blog, Biblio Mike. For those that listen to the show, you know he writes in there a lot. And he's always very astute. So I was happy to see him comment going back to episode two where I talked about Earth One. And Biblio Mike writes, Hi there, I'm really enjoying the show. I only recently discovered you via the Superman Podcast Network and am enjoying playing catch up. I especially enjoyed your Why the World Needs Superman commentary in the first episode and agree completely we need hope. And the best Superman stories provide it because ultimately Superman inspires people to hope, not in him, but in themselves. And beyond that, in such ideals as truth, justice, dignity, freedom, compassion, all those things that have not have been not only the American way at its best, but the human way at its best. One small nitpick 
read this episode. You expressed pretty open disdain for the new Krypton run of recent Superman titles, yet you lamented that we would not see what sounds essentially like a similar story in the now never-to-be-direct sequel to Superman Returns. The new Krypton arc was all about more Kryptonians coming to Earth and not being direct villains. At least not all of them. Yeah, Zod and his cronies were around. But challenging Superman's role and thereby forcing him and us to clarify it. What we learned or remembered is not that Superman is super because of his great abilities, but because his great ideals and great devotion to them. Superman is a Kryptonian, but not all Kryptonians are like Superman. I appreciate the new Krypton arcs for being a wonderful epic theme and variations on that idea, particularly the world of new Krypton title proper. That aside, I do enjoy your commentaries and your spirit as host and look forward to tuning into your show for a long time to come. Thanks for the hard work and for sharing your passion for this fantastic character. Well, thank you, Biblio Mike. I appreciate you writing in. I, I agree with you completely. Hope is definitely nestled well within Superman. And to be clear on New Krypton, it, the idea you're talking about was a great idea. And when I read the concept of New Krypton, when we saw what was happening in the early stages, I was definitely excited because I liked the idea of a storyline where I mean, I could look at that and say, you know, we've never seen this before. This is something that is big and epic, just as you pointed out. My real gripe with it was the length and the execution. While I liked reading the the World of New Krypton miniseries, I didn't see why it couldn't be in the Superman series. And I think for me, the ultimate thing that really killed it for me, because I read it all the way through as it came out, was in the end, and of course we're going to go through a lot of specifics once we get to that, but in the end, none of it mattered. I mean, we moved directly into the grounded storyline, which only deals with the events in a tertiary way. So we really, it was just the payoff. We had a lot happen. We had a lot of potential there, and I didn't see that potential met. So it's not necessarily a disdain for the concept. It's a disdain for what really could have been and wasn't. Although I did notice, uh, ironically, between Billy and Biblio Mike's, uh, the similarity between their emails was, you know, apparently I don't like when Kryptonians visit Earth. That's that's not true, because I'm enjoying Last Sun to some extent. But the idea of that, you know, Superman's role on Earth is being challenged, that could have been really good reading. And it really played out fairly well in All-Star Superman. Just, you know, context was a little bit different. It's just the length and the multiple miniseries of world of crypt uh, that the uh, new Krypton storyline brought about. That was what kind of got to me because that's money coming out of my wallet, which I never ever like. <laughs> There's no need to spend more money, but that's going to wrap up our episode. I do appreciate Billy and Biblio Mike for writing in. I always appreciate everybody that writes in. I do appreciate everybody that listens. Um, as I mentioned, you know, right at the beginning of the show, I don't like missing a week because being here talking about Superman is the highlight of my week. Being able to sit down and do this show and going through the week and writing it up, doing the reviews, um, writing about the topic, which ironically our co our topic this week was a little bit abbreviated. And you may have noticed I didn't do the character spotlight just because once I got to that point, I realized we were running long. So next week we'll pick that up um, with some uh, look at Jimmy Olsen and get back to what we do. Now, I do want to note one last thing. The Metropolis Idol voting is now up. What I have done is changed the voting structure a little bit. I've taken everybody that's in the pool since, uh, you know, I seemed, I don't know exactly what happened with the poll host, poll host poll that I'd put on there. 
but it kept voting towards one and not both of them. So I'm using the blogger poll and I've just taken everybody involved in round two and put them right there on the sidebar at supermanforever.com. And you can choose multiple people so you can vote for multiple Supermans, but please do visit there sometime this week and uh, give us a vote. And next week what we'll do is we'll just kick off the bottom four and then the week after that we'll get down to the final two. And then finally we will have our official Superman and Metropolis Idol will be a memory for quite some time. But once again, I appreciate everybody listening. I appreciate you downloading this. And uh, if this episode sounds a little off, I'm actually switching computers at this point. Just got a new computer. So some of my notes are a little bit stilted. So I do apologize for that. And uh, the sound should be fine. If it isn't, email me. I will go back in and re-edit and get that fixed for you. But as usual, you can always email me at mail at supermanforever.com. You can call our phone-in line at 703-95-SUPER or 703-957-8737. I am also on Twitter. I am Superman, the number four, ever, dot com. Not just drop the dot com. It's Superman, the number four, ever, at Superman Forever. And, of course, I'm on Facebook. Just look up SupermanForever.com and you will find me. And I do appreciate you listening one last time. And until next week, keep fighting the never-ending battle. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademark of DC Comics, Warner Brothers Entertainment Company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.